Good morning. I want to start today by thinking about the difference between what and how. The difference between what and how. What I mean is we often know what needs to be done. For instance, within Hobart, we know that we need to fix the traffic situation through town. So that's what needs to be done. <clears throat> the, the question is, how will it be done? That's, that's the question, isn't it? At the moment, we've, uh, we've got inflation running a little higher than we would like it in, our, in, our, in Australia. Um, what is going to happen? How will we progress with that? And so there's a difference, isn't there, between what needs to happen and how you're going to do it. Now, if you're, a, if you're a Christian, I think you know this. You know that what we need to do as God's people is to be representing God. Thank you for that drink. Um, we need to be representing God and living as God's church in this world. Thank you. And very often the question we have is, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do that? Maybe you're not a Christian here today. And you've got a different what, how question. Maybe for you the question is, what, what is God about? What's Christianity about? Where do I stand with God? What should I be looking at in this world? And uh, we're going to be seeing today that it's going to be answering how God answers that uh, for you. So this is what we uh, are looking at today in the book of Chronicles. We're going to be looking at this difference between what and how. Last week we saw what the nation of Israel is we saw that big list of genealogies and that those genealogies showed us that Israel was God's special nation in this world, that they had a special mission to this world to speak to the world. And so we saw what the nation of Israel was. Today we're going to be looking at how they're going to do that. How is it that Israel speaks? What is it that the people of God are meant to be doing? How is it that they speak to the world? Now, the book of Chronicles, and as we look at this, the second half of Chronicles, chapter 10 to the end of uh, First Chronicles, it answers it by saying that Israel's going to speak to the world through their Messiah King, through the city of Jerusalem, and through the temple. And these are going to be the foundations for how they identify themselves and for what their mission is. And so this section of Chronicles is historical. It tells us about Saul, David, and David's activities in preparing for the temple a long time in the past. It's going to give them history compared to where they are now. It's going to tell them their history. And it's doing this so that they can see that what David set up and the temple that was set up in the past was in fact what God was doing. So they're going to be learning from their history of how God has interacted with them, how God has set them up as a nation, how God instituted them, and they're going to, from that, understand what the future holds. By understanding their past and what God has done in the past, they're going to understand what the future holds for them. Well, let's begin. As I said, it begins by talking about the Messiah here. And we see this in chapter 10 with King Saul being introduced after this, the genealogies. Now the word Messiah, I'll be using this word today, the word Messiah is the word to anoint. 
It's the word to anoint, to anoint with oil or perfume. And what would happen is that the kings of Israel, and we'll see this in our, in our uh, readings today, the kings of Israel were anointed with oil to become king. And so they were the Messiah kings. They were the Messiah kings. Now, as the nation of Israel, as we saw last week, is in exile and they're waiting for God to bring his Messiah king, they're told the history of the Messiahs, where the Messiahs come from. And the first one they're introduced to is King Saul, who is the first king of Israel. But what we see with Saul is in chapter 10, verse 13, that Saul was not the type of shepherd, not the type of leader, not the type of king that God wanted. Verse 13, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So here the history of the Messiah is introduced with the failure of Saul. He did not listen to the word of the Lord. He looked to other places, particularly in this case to the occult. And so we see here that we all may sin in different ways, but if you're a leader of God's people and you sin by turning them away from the word of God, by being an example to them and not being a leader of the word of God and looking for God's guidance elsewhere, that you're rejected by God. This is what a Messiah shouldn't be like. Uh, we see this in many times uh, in the New Testament where the leaders of God's people are to be men and women of the word. And Saul was not like that. He didn't shepherd God's people as the leader of God's people, the one with authority to do basically as he wishes. He didn't shepherd them in the word of God, but he turned aside away from God's word, even to the occult. Now, how is God going to do it? It's not going to be through the behaviour of people like Saul, but it's going to be through a Messiah king who values God's word and shepherds God's people through that word. <clears throat> and this is why we then meet David next, because this is how David lived his life. Chapter 11, verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, they made a compact with, with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed, that is Messiah, David king over Israel, as the Lord had promised through Samuel. And so here we meet this, this next king after Saul, and we're going to see that he's a different type of king. He's the Messiah king, but notice what David goes on to do. Verses 4 and 5, David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and, and they conquer it. They conquer Jerusalem. And David makes Jerusalem the capital city. It's not Samaria, it's Jerusalem. And it's because of David that Jerusalem is important in the Bible. This is what the Messiah does. He makes the Jerusalem important. 
You see, up until this time, there's, there's been different cities around the world. And you read this in the book of Genesis. There's Babylon. Right? There's Babylon. There's Athens off in the east. But now, there's Jerusalem. Babylon, that ancient city hostile to God. Athens, which we'll see in the future the, this, the, of, of man's wisdom. But now, there is Jerusalem, the city of God. There's a new player on, the, on world history. There's a new city, a new light in the world, Jerusalem. And David is the one who sets this up. You see, God's going to be speaking to the world through Jerusalem. As we follow David's life, we see that there's the soldiers, as we go through the stories here, that the soldiers from all over Israel and the nations come and join him. All of Israel agree that David is their king. His kingdom is established through victories and he sets up proper governments with, with, record, with um, secretaries and, and generals and people who are writing the histories for them. The nations around him are subdued. Now chapter 14, verse 2, tell us why God was doing this. It's very interesting. Chapter 14, verse 2. It says, And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom had been highly exalted for the sake of the people of Israel. Notice how God works. He raises up his messianic king. He gives his messianic king victories for the sake of his people. The way that God blesses his people and brings and delivers them their kingdom is through his Messiah King. Now David then, as we continue to read his, about his life, he then brings the tabernacle to Jerusalem. Now the tabernacle was what Moses set up and it was like a large tent, a series of tents. And that was how God dwelt with his people. And King David wants to move this into Jerusalem. He doesn't move it in the right way at first, and so there's a bit of a problem there, but then he, he brings it in. And then we now have the, cent, uh, God's, the, the worship of God now centred in Jerusalem as well. This is a big shift that David's making. He then leads the people in worship, and we see this in chapter 16, um, chapter 16, verse 7. What have I got here? That day... David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. And then it goes through a psalm. So he's brought the, the tabernacle, the worship of God into Jerusalem. And then he sets up and leads people in the worship of God. So here again, we see the Messianic king is focusing the worship of God, establishing the worship of God and leading God's people in that worship. Now, why is David doing this? Why is he doing these things? Well, it's because he loves God and he loves God's people and he wants God to be at the centre of their life. David wants the worship of God and God's word to be at the centre of God's people's life. And so he's setting things up this way so that the worship of the true and living God will be what Israel is about he is shepherding God's people in the way that a good shepherd of God's people should do 
I want to ask you, what's the centre of your life? What is the centre of your life? We see here what, what the centre should be. Um, don't, don't we? We see that it's to do with the word of God and with the, the worship of God. This is how David sets it up. And, and so if you're a leader within this church, what type of leader should you be? You need to be a leader who's shepherding God's people in the word and the worship of God. Now, I, I think we can read our own experience of this back into Israel, but it's actually quite different because David is the king. And so when he is making these decisions, it has a big effect. Just imagine if our prime minister was able to shepherd Australia in this way. That would make a big difference, wouldn't it? Imagine if the royal family, instead of sort of being swept up in controversies and sort of trivialities, actually used their model as the head of the Church of England for godliness. That would actually have a big effect on people. Imagine if our universities, rather than just promoting secularism, claiming to be multicultural, but actually just promoting secularism, imagine if they're actually working hard in the word of God. It would actually have a huge impact on our community, wouldn't it? As it is at the moment, all of those forces are actually acting in the opposite direction to turn people away. That's a whole other matter that we could uh, look at. So you see here that when David as king is doing this, this is shaping the godliness of the nation. This is setting the nation in its direction that it will go. And he does this because he loves God and he loves God's people. <clears throat> so th this is the, the good Messiah. Th this is the type of Messiah you would want to have. This is the history of the Messiahs that the, the Jews, as they wait for the coming Messiah, are meant to know this history. Now, David in time wants to build a temple. He wants to change the tabernacle, which is a tent structure, to a permanent structure called a temple. And we read this in chapter 17. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am in a palace of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is in a tent. David replied, as Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. And so David decides that he's going to build this tabernacle. But during the night, God sends a word to Nathan and says something to him. Let's look at verse 4. Um, so sorry, that, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, You are not the one to build a house for me to dwell in. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says no. And God said no to David. Now compare what David does to Saul. When God said no to Saul, Saul just sort of abandoned God and went his own way. But when God says no to David... David accepts this decision. 
And there's a lesson in that for us as well, isn't there? That we need to trust God and continue to walk in God's ways, even when sometimes we get the answer of no from God. We see this with David. Now, the reason why David is not to build the temple is given to us, which we had in our reading, chapter 22, verse 8. Chapter 22, verse 8. Uh, but this is the word of the Lord that came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Now this is very honest and real, isn't it? David was a man of war. And God's answer to him is that you're too violent. <laughs> now, one of the criticisms that we can hear in our culture against the Bible is that the Bible has all this violence in it. And it certainly does record wars. It records judgments. It records these types of things and sometimes commands it. But in no way does the Bible give an unqualified approval of warfare. The Bible does not give an unqualified approval of warfare. And here is one of the main characters in the Bible, one of the main men that God worked through, King David, and he is not able to build the, the temple of God because he was a man of blood. It's going to be a man of peace who builds the temple of God. And so David... His role now is to bring about preparation for the temple and we'll see him getting together resources and materials, gold, silver, wood, all these different types of things. But what David also contributes to is the location of the temple. We read about an incident where David sins and the judgment of God comes. Uh, he calls for a census to count God's people, so that uh, to count the army so he can see the strength of his army for his planning and everything rather than just trusting that God will raise up what God needs. And so uh, he, he is judged by God and he, he offers a sacrifice at a certain place and as we read the story, where that sacrifice is offered is ground zero for where the temple is going to be built. It's going to be the place which turns aside the wrath of God on him. Now, David does something else here which really struck me the last time I read it. And it may be something we don't even think about. But David makes a change to how God dwells with his people. Here we see the Messiah making a change to how God dwells with his people. Now, that, that may not seem like a big deal. But just think about it. In the Old Testament, it's the law of Moses. Keep the law of Moses. Read the law of Moses. The law of Moses never said go and build a temple. The law of Moses had the tabernacle. And here we have David bringing about a big change in the way that God dwells with his people. In fact, in chapter 23, verses 25 to 26, he's going to make some of the Levites unemployed. Moses had set up the Levites to do certain jobs. And here is David changing the law of Moses 
and making certain Levites unemployed because they're not going to be able to carry the tabernacle around now. On what basis can he do this? There actually needs to be a basis for the temple because you're changing aspects of the law of Moses. Have a look at chapter 28, verse 11, uh, ch chapter 11, and we'll see this here. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts and its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and of the surrounding rooms for the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and for all the dedicated things. Then verse 19, all this David said, I have in written form from the hand of the Lord upon me and he gave me an understanding of all the details of the plan. Now all this talk about plan and everything, that's the way that Moses spoke when he was building the tabernacle. It would say that God gave Moses the plan for it. And here we have exactly the same language being used for the temple. And so we see here that David, the Messiah, is a prophet like Moses. David has a prophetic role like Moses. You see, the Messiah is going to make the place where God and humanity dwell. The Messiah brings God and humanity together. This is our doctrine of the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who brings God and humanity together. This is why when Jesus comes, he's talking about a temple. Because the Messiah brings God and humanity together. And that's what we see here. So to finish up this, uh, the, the, this overview of the, the rest of Chronicles, I began by asking what is the, uh, what the... The first question is what that we saw in the first nine chapters. And we saw that what was answered by Israel as God's chosen people to speak to this world. But how are they going to do it? They're going to do it through their messianic king, through the temple of Jerusalem, uh, th through Jerusalem, and through the temple. But we've also seen something else. We've learned who. And the who is not David. The who is not David. The who is going to be Solomon, but as we read through the rest of Chronicles, it's also not Solomon. Solomon will build this temple. But by the time you get to the end of Chronicles, this temple's destroyed. And, and these kings who have come after Solomon are not leading the people in godliness. They're, they're not upholding the temple. They're not making Jerusalem a light and a city to the nations of the world. And so this first book of Chronicles really has this question hanging of who is going to do this? We've looked at the history and we've seen what the kings of Israel need to do. They need to, um, to be this messianic king, shepherding God's people uh, around the temple, making the temple, being, uh, making Jerusalem a, a light to the nations. But we don't know who that who is going to be. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we find out who it is. We find out who this true Messiah is. And it's Jesus. As I mentioned before, have a look at how Jesus, or what Jesus starts speaking about when he comes. 
We see this in, uh, in, in Matthew 12 and in the accounts of Jesus on the cross. But we particularly see it in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I, will re and I will raise it in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, Jesus comes, he is the Messiah. He comes as the Messiah. And so he comes talking about the temple. This is why when Jesus comes, he talks about the temple because... That's what the Messiah does. The Messiah is the temple builder. And Jesus actually builds the perfect temple. Now, how does he build the perfect temple? Well, he builds the perfect temple by taking to himself a human body. Taking to himself a human body. And so what we see in Jesus is that perfect union of God dwelling in with humanity. Jesus' body is that perfect temple. He is God and humanity perfectly dwelling together. He is the fulfillment of what the temple is about. Now, Jesus here, he changes the, the way that God dwells with his people. And so the book of Hebrews will, will talk about how the law of Moses with its tabernacle and everything has come to an end. But I hope you can see that the book of Chronicles shows us that this is what the Messiah does. The book of Chronicles shows us that the Messiah can change how God dwells with his people. And so it shows that that New Testament change to how God dwells with his people being in Christ is actually legitimate for us. There's a precedent already in the Old Testament. We see as we read through the Gospels, not only that Jesus is the perfect place where God and humanity dwells, but that he leads God's people in worship. We see him quoting Psalm 22 regularly, which is all about the Messiah King leading God's people in worship. And Jesus is the one who offers the true worship for God on our behalf. He brings the resurrection kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God, he, he, the, the kingdom we'd been waiting for, the resurrection kingdom Jesus brings in himself as well. Now, why is it that God's done all these things in Christ? Well, he's done it because he loves us. He's done it because he's raised up Jesus on behalf of God's people, as we read in Chronicles. God has done everything for us in Jesus. He's brought about our forgiveness. He's brought about our union with him. He's brought about the true worship of God that needs to happen. He's brought the resurrection kingdom. Everything we need for God, everything we want from God, our forgiveness, our status before him, we find in Jesus. As we come to him, we see that he is the fulfillment of all of what David and the history of Israel and the Messiah was pointing towards. And so now we come to Jesus. We join ourselves to him. And as we join ourselves to him, as we put our faith in him, all of what he has achieved is achieved for us. So to finish up, today we've looked at 
two things, what, or three things, what, how and who. We've seen that God's people are to be a light in this world, something that last week we saw we share in as well. How is this going to happen? Well, it's going to happen through the plans of God being fulfilled for, for the Messiah ruler who will shepherd God's people, for, for Jerusalem to be a light to the world, for there to be a temple where God and man meet. But we've also seen who, haven't we? We've seen who is the one who brings this to its fulfilment. And it's Jesus, the one who calls us to, uh, to, to, to see how he loves us, to see what he's done for us and to put our faith in him. Amen.